allegedly said that you left him in a bloody pope. I don't know. I don't yeah, talk. you was high. It, it, it says that uh, y'all was on his private jet or something like that. Y'all was yeah, that was pretty soon. Listen, if this rematch is going to happen, I'm going to show you what I can do. I've got another level, I've got another gear. It looked like you could have done that for 15 rounds in there, like an old school fighter. You know, the way the 15 rounders used to... Right, listen, if you, if you want to sort it out, fight me. You didn't fight me. You could have fought me and you didn't. If you want to fight me, here I am. Let's have a fight. Let's do it on the cobbles if you want. Forget boxing. Let's do it outside. They call me the problem. But you could call me the can man, cause anybody can get Africans, Americans, Dominicans, Mexicans, anybody can get Welcome to part two of the Q&A episode from the greatest podcast in the sport where you get the straightest answers from the straightest people. So I'm just going to jump in now, just carry on with these questions. Uh, God, this is unbelievably taxing because, you know, you have to stay concentrated. And like I said, I have to try doing this without referring to box rec or without having to check my phone. So we've got a couple of questions about Clarissa Shields versus Savannah Marshall in the, the postponed card that should have happened last Saturday. And one's from Kobe Vicker, one's from Danny Watley. So Kobe's question is, have they rescheduled it too close to the original date? And is there enough up and down time for them to be in shape and make weight for the 15th? And then um, Danny Watley asks, will we get the same card on the 15th? So I'll, ta I'll, I'll tackle all of that in one go. So first things first, it didn't do great numbers in terms of sales. So there's a real dilemma here. When you commit to doing an all-female card, what you can't then do is reschedule and go, okay, we're not going to do an all-female card. Like that, that would literally crush all the momentum built up this year for women's boxing. But your challenge is you're not going to fill the O2. So what do you do? Commercially, what you would do is you'd find new homes for these fights. That's what you'd do. Right? That's exactly what you would do. But for the long-term viability of women's boxing, I don't think you can do that. So October the 15th it is. Do I think you'll get the same card, Danny? Yeah. And the reason you'll get the same card is no one's got anywhere else they need to be. Karis and Lauren are still learning. Ebony Jones is still learning. There are loads of people still learning. So it's about whether you can get Alicia Baumgardner and Michaela Mayer back. Clarissa Shields will come back for this fight. This is the fight she wants. She doesn't need another fight after this. There's no mountain left to climb unless she wants to go down to welterweight, which she could probably do. So I look at it from that perspective. The fight will have to happen. Now, what shape would they be in? At this level, you have enough nutritional support, enough kind of SNC support that you can have four or five days. Not where you go crazy food-wise, but where you can have a few more carbs, you can have a bit more dietary fat, you know, maybe maybe a can of Coke or something, right? And then you get back down to work, focusing on peaking again on the 15th. So it's not impossible. Remember, fight week, they've had a week off. So this this will feel like a week off because the fight didn't happen, right? So it's like a recovery week. Have another recovery week, and then you get back at it again. They'll be they'll get itchy knuckles by that point as well. So I don't imagine there's too many problems around the, the reschedule. You know, remember Ali Foreman was rescheduled for six weeks hence. So that's not going to be an issue because either way, it affects both, right? They're both going to make the same date, going to make the same weight. Um. But wider than that, what were top rank doing having all of these top rank fighters here? Like, who's paying for this, by the way? 
Who's paying for this? Who's paying to have Jared Anderson here and Troy Eisley here? Who's paying? And I did, it didn't make any sense to me because it's like, well, what are you here for? How close are you to fighting someone British? Nowhere near close enough to fight someone British. So what are you here for? As Porky would say, you're just getting the free gratis for nothing. It's just a, just a bit of a jolly. And then this is all going to happen again. You're hoping that Sky's insurance will cover the cancellation, but geez, they're incurring a lot of costs just to keep top rank happy. So it's almost like, yeah, you get Michaela Mayer, but you've got to have these other guys with her. Like, why? Yeah, that's nothing against Michaela Mayer, by the way, but I don't understand what the point of all of that was. It just felt like a bit of a PR disaster because they didn't even make the most of these guys when they were here. How many gyms did they go to? There you go. How many kids did they inspire? No. So what are they doing here? Absolutely nothing. And th this sort of like just throwing money around culture that we have in boxing needs to stop. So John, um, I think he's at Premier Boxing, so distinct from John Mulhall, asks a really interesting question. And it is, I have to basically pick who are trained across four categories. So the categories are amateur, novice, rising star, and world-class. This is going to be tricky. So amateur, if I look at it from a UK perspective, there's a kid called Ellis Trowbridge who is 19 or 20. Ellis Trowbridge used to train with us at Fitzroy Lodge. So he's Duke McKenzie's lad. And he's a small kid. So he's like 49 kilos. Right? Like Sonny Edwards size weight. Those two would make a good spar, actually. I'm not saying that Ellis would beat up Sonny. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying stylistically, I think it would work well together. And he, yeah, he's good. Jesus, he's good really really good if if he can keep developing and just sort of harden up physically and mentally yeah he'll be an absolute monster i think he's on the gb radar already but i'd happily work with him again i think he's a great kid lovely young man really humble modest a fine example and you know you know there's a man duke mckenzie that doesn't get his credit in the sport three-time world champion never gets it never gets his credit what was it three different weight classes so credit where credit's due. So for the amateur, Ellis Trowbridge is one that I think of from my own experience. But there's an Uzbek kid at super heavyweight. This is where I need Jamie Ingleby. There's an Uzbek kid at super heavyweight. He's about 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, and I saw him in like the world juniors and he was smoking people. Just southpaw, one-twoing people to death. And I was like, do you know what? There's money in that kid. I can't remember his name. I was going to say Jalilov. It's not. But he's like like a mini Jalilov, but just younger, not smaller. So he, he looks like he could definitely do something special. Um, novice. Oh, we pick a novice. I think you're in the sort of looking at the 20, 2020 class, right? So a kid like a Duke Reagan. Um, who else would I put on top of that? Duke Reagan. Keyshawn Davis is another one who I think is class. Um, rising star Ellie Scottney I think I think that would work well she has all those attributes I love she's a combination puncher she's got good intensity like in the ring like outside the ring she's an absolute joy to be around like she's good energy to have around but she's got that focus and like I say loves combination punching so they're the names I'd put in there uh, from a novice perspective rising star Ooh, Sebastian Fandora. That's to be, to be a bucket load of fun. That would just be fun. You've got a six foot five guy at light middle who wants to throw combinations, doesn't want to keep it long. Man, I'm all in on that. A hundred percent all in on that. Um would I put someone like Dan Aziz in that mix? A hundred percent. I'd love to train Dan, and that's no disrespect to Brian O'Shaughnessy, who's his trainer and a man I've got a lot of respect for. But if you said to me, yeah, would you train Dan 100%? We, in a lot of ways, we see boxing in similar ways. So that would just be fun. You know, I'm not going to be here to say I can do a better job than anyone else. I think that's disrespectful. I'm just saying it would be fun, and we'd get a lot done. A lot of good stuff would get done. Uh, from a world-class perspective... 
Hmm. So this is interesting because you can just revert back to like a Crawford, but I think that's a bit lazy. So you want to think of where can I, where could I add value? That's how I look at it. Like where could I really add value? And you start to look down the weight classes. Um, <laughs> Richard Riakpo. But he's not world class. I can't have him. Can I have him as a rising star? Um, so at that elite level. Joe Joyce. Yeah, I think that'd be fun. Fun. Joe Joyce, Anthony Joshua, someone like that, a big lump that you can just get working. And it's not about, in those situations, you're not working on their physique. You're not working on their technique. You're just trying to get them into a mental space where they can find the magic within themselves. At the elite level, you're not going to add much other than that. If you can unlock 20% out of their mentality, you mean you change the game. And that's what Emmanuel Stewart was really good at, was being able to unlock that, that hidden reserve of desire and talent, you know, that desire to be better every day. And then in a fight, that desire to really want to flex your muscles and express yourself. I think that was the, the magic. And I think someone like a Joe Joyce or Anthony Joshua would be perfect for that. So let's come back to Danny Watley. And he asks... Summarize the question. We've got Joe Joyce against Joseph Parker, Lee Wood versus Mauricio Lara on the same night. A, what an absolute disaster this is. Like, this, this is shithousery of the highest order. Let's be brutally honest here. And so Danny's question is, who's going to win out in this battle? Here's the problem. Joyce Parker is more expensive to make than Wood Lara. So Eddie doesn't have the same pressure to make money that Frank has. Frank has to sell pay-per-views. But the problem is, who wants to see this fight on pay-per-view? I know I don't. Yeah, I don't. Like, There's no reason these two guys are fighting other than money and maybe like ranking kudos. But... There's no real, like, they don't, it's not like they've always disliked each other. There's been no shoving. There's nothing to draw you into this fight. What makes it even worse is Frank's got a show on the 16th of September with Denzel Bentley against Marcus Morrison. I mean, Denzel Bentley versus Marcus Morrison for the British. So, how is, how is Denzel not fighting on this card? Why is he on the pay-per-view card? You know, I know you've got Amanda Serrano on there and you've got some other guys on there. I think you might have Anto Kikachi on there. Fine, but you're telling me Denzel doesn't belong in that company. That's absolutely insane. The fact that you've got two shows one week apart, this is a height of arrogance. Frank Stable is not that good that there are two cards in, in the space of, what, eight days? That makes sense? They don't make sense. They don't. Uh, if Frank's just like, I've, I've just got to get the lads out, fine. But you can't disrespect Denzel Bentley like that and say, yeah, you're, you're, you're basically just going to be the top of a next-gen card. Like That lets me know that you're not investing in him. He should be on your pay-per-view. He should be there in that fight week generating interest. That's exactly what he should be doing. I mean, all these guys like Callum Thompson. Uh, yeah, okay, it's in Manchester. But they know who Denzel Bentley is in Manchester. Hefron's fighting and Hefron doesn't have an opponent for God's sake. So his British belt's clearly viable. Why isn't Denzel's? Just for that, I'll be watching Lee Wood versus Mauricio Lara. So the economics of that Wood-Lara fight mean that Eddie can just afford to go right. Even if 50,000 people watch it on his own, fine, that's perfect. But I can tell you this now, Nottingham will be buzzing on fight day. Probably more so than Manchester. Nottingham will be buzzing. Because there's real jeopardy in this fight. Real jeopardy. Local lad might get his head taken clean off. Real jeopardy. Now, in the old days of Hearn versus Warren, it would be on Sky and it would be on BT and you'd already have subscriptions. So one would be on t the TV, one would be on the laptop or the tablet. But you'd watch both. You'd flip between the two. And we'd just be tweeting randomly about all of them. 
but that DAZN thing introduces a new dimension. Like, do you really want to get the subscription? So I imagine the people who will get this will be the people that get the Canelo Triple G and just go, well, I've got it for the month now. I may as well watch that fight. So I, see, I can see Frank losing money on this one. And Sky love it because they're like, yeah, we've made Joe rich without having to pay him. But now Sky will have that dilemma. What do you do with a, a Joseph Parker who's just been run over by a juggernaut? Where do you put him in the mix? Mm-hmm. So overall, in response to your question, Danny, I think Wood Lara will come out of this better. You know, I think the viewerships will be broadly similar, if I'm being honest. Um, if you added up streaming and, you know, legitimate views, I think it would be broadly similar. Boxing fans are like that. They always find a way to watch everything. But the board needed to intervene here because this is just hurting the business. That's all it is. It's hurting the business. And it's not like this is real competition. It's just pettiness. That's all it is. It's pettiness. Eddie knows he's got budget for a show. He just goes, right, here's a low-cost show I'm going to put on. Have some of that. You know, take your Echo Esselman and shove it. Take your Callum Thompson and shove it. And I don't necessarily agree with that. That's not good for boxing. It's a really good question from Welsh Ollie here. Um, once again, I'll summarize. Has Eddie Hearn found a new partner in the Middle East? You know, unlimited riches, um, probably gullible enough to believe anything that he says. And is this Eddie's dream? It's just more money to play around with without him having to really take any risk on his balance sheet. And then the second part of the question is, will we see more Brits fighting in the Middle East? There's an episode in the New Age podcast where I said, you're going to see the Middle East become the center of boxing. And there were two reasons I said. I said, one, there's just a shit ton of money that doesn't have a home, right? So they can afford to spend the money on something. Because think about this. If I spend $100 million on a boxing event and I recoup 90 it's still better than inflation. Do you see what I mean? So it's hard to lose. Whereas the money would just sit in the bank and you get clobbered by inflation. So I can I get why they would do that. Like capital moving is better than anything else. So he's got that. And he was smart enough to get in there when he did. But the other reason I said was because you can just get PEDs over the counter there. It may have changed recently, but you could. You could just go over there and get PEDs, no prescription, no drama. You could do what you wanted. So it was beneficial. So everything there is set up for you to be able to do stuff and get away with it. That's why a lot of people end up in the Middle East. The downside of the Middle East is very hard to find things like altitude. But then if you're doping, do you even need that in the first place? So yeah, I think he's landed on his feet with this one. And I think he'll do another version of what they call the long con. So the long con essentially is I buy products from a supplier. I pay on time. I keep ordering. I keep ordering. And then one day... I say, right, I need a massive order. And then that's an order I don't pay on. And I just disappear. You don't find me. And that's what he'll do. So Hearn will go in and he'll give really good cards, right? So we've got Bivol versus Zudo Ramirez. Decent card. Makes perfect sense. How many of those can Eddie deliver? Not many. Right? He can't deliver that many. So what you're going to end up with at some point is like a Maxi Hughes versus Lee Wood in Abu Dhabi or Dubai. That's what you're going to end up with. And then they're going to look and go, God, we're really wasting our money on this. But by then, Eddie's a rich man. He doesn't care. So he's always been smart in finding, like I said, rule number one in boxing, find people with money, separate them from their money. Doesn't matter who it is, Bill Ives or whoever it is, you find a man with money, separate him from his money. Eddie's done, he's, he's learned from the best. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's learned from the best. And then remember, they sold that stake. I don't know if they've actually sold it yet, but they're selling that stake for $175 million. Why isn't that going into these shows? Because it's not about the shows. It's about them getting rich. And all this time, you fans have bought into this. This idea that Eddie's one of you, he's one of the lads, banter this. You all fell for that. 
Meanwhile, he's there pocketing 175 million. What are you pocketing? Not much. And until fans expect more from their promoters, this is what you're going to get. You're going to get a piss-poor card on the Friday at your call. Then you're going to get the following weekend, Parker versus whoever in Manchester, which is going to be a dud. Because it normally is. It'll be a dud. Because there's no real build-up to it. Meanwhile, Hearn will just literally hearn the life out of Canelo versus, uh, what you call it, Golovkin. And then he'll just build that momentum into Wood versus Lara. You will not be able to see or hear Joe Joyce or Joseph Parker for the next two weeks. I promise you that. Hearn will make sure that doesn't happen. He's a smart man. As much as he may annoy people, he's a smart man. He knows. He knows how to keep the competition in check. So credit where credit's due. Hopefully the Middle Eastern guys will have their own boxing advisors who will tell them what a good show is and what a good show isn't. You know, otherwise, if they do this on ego, Eddie Hearn will have them for hundreds of millions of dollars. Sweet Puget, and thanks for the questions. Um, so he just asked, you know, we're seeing a lot of US amateurs now switch hitting and whether this is A, viable, B, valuable. Now, for me, everything has to have a purpose. You have to be solving a problem with everything that you do when you're training someone. If you're switch hitting, and I've, I've seen switch hitting done well and I've seen it done badly. Switch hitting done well is essentially you just maneuvering your feet to get shots off. Right? But it, it requires an intuitive understanding of where you are and what can come back at you. Hagler was a good example. You know, he could do that. In the amateurs, the person I saw executed the best way was Kelly Harrington. Now, Kelly could literally go from a counter left hook, step back, counter left hook off the other side. Both lead hooks. I've seen her do it for a whole round. Just everything was lead hand. She just switched from left to right. Didn't throw a single backhand because she was focusing on just landing quick shots. Fair enough. And it works. The problem you have with switch hitting is what level can you get to switch hitting? So in the amateurs, you can get away with it. It's three three-minute rounds, which means you have more capacity than you have work. Does that make sense? So I have more energy to do things than the things I'm going to do. Pro boxing is different. You're doing 12 three-minute rounds at the top, top level. You have far more work than you have energy. So now you've got to ration your energy. Now you've got to deal with the fact that you're going to get super tired. Do you still want to be switch hitting when you're absolutely knackered and your reflexes slow down a bit? You probably don't. And so this is why all of your great fighters, and remember, most greats can fight off both feet, by the way. But at the top level, you have to be incredible in one stance. Incredible in one stance. And I hear the example of, you know, Naz switch hit, this, that, and the third. It didn't work against Barrera and Barrera's jab. Once he shut the space down and he was consistent, he only had to think about one thing. What shot am I throwing? Naz has to think about where are my feet? What can I throw? And that takes too much time. So I think in the amateur, you can, you can get away with it. Um, I think the Kazakhs do it a fair bit. The Uzbeks can do it. And I thought that sort of region some Armenians, they can all do that. The Azeris can do it as well. They can all do that. But you notice they don't do it in the pros. In the pros, it gets serious. It's like, I have to specialize. And that's, that's elite anything. You have to specialize. I remember asking a friend of mine who was into snooker, if Ronnie O'Sullivan played left-handed, what level would he get to? And he's like, he doesn't crack the top 16. That's what he said to me. And I asked him why. And he said, Ronnie can do it when he's hammering someone seven frames to nil and he goes left-handed and he looks amazing. If Ronnie O'Sullivan was seven frames to nil down, could he play left-handed and overturn that? And he said, I don't believe he could. You know, Ronnie O'Sullivan playing a whole season. He said, Ronnie O'Sullivan playing a whole season left-handed doesn't crack the top 16. I was like, okay. Then it comes down to skill breakdown. At what level of stress at what level of intensity does your skill level start to degenerate? It's different for everyone, but ultimately, 
it's a lot easier to hold your thing together when you're comfortable on one side and it's intuitive. I've just never seen anyone intuitively switch hit with any great success. Even Hagler took a lot of discipline. It's not intuitive. And I, I can't explain why it's not intuitive, but it's just not intuitive. So I think you'll see a lot more of it in the amateurs and I think you'll see some pros try it and then they'll realize it doesn't work. So it's just another fad. Like you go through these fads, you know, like when Manny Pacquiao came out, people wanted to be Southpaw. That was one of the biggest reasons between Pacquiao and Sergio Martinez, a lot of people switched to Southpaw. Then Mayweather came and you had the shoulder roll and you had the kind of the counter right uppercut and all those sorts of things, right? Things come and go depending on who's on top. It's just the nature of any sport, right? Football, wingbacks are cool now. But do you remember when Brian Little used to play wingbacks and people laughed at him? You know? And same with rugby. It's now cool to have players who can offload, but before in the old days, it wasn't. And then before that, it was. It's just one of those things. Switch hitting's in fashion now, and it will slide out of fashion. Second part of the question is I'm trying to think how do how do I phrase it? What's the weirdest trainer fighter combination I can think of? For me, it'll always be Don Charles and Derek Chisora. Because when you go into Don's gym, like Don's bubbly, like there's just a lot of warm energy from Don. He's genuinely a gentleman. He's he's a sort of like older, wiser uncle, if that makes sense. Lovely man, kind, heart of gold, all that sort of stuff. But when you see the dynamic between him and Derek, you're like, I don't know how this works. Because Derek's quite sullen when he comes in the gym. Like, it's different. Some people come into the gym and they're full of energy until they start getting their hands wrapped. Then they start to quieten down and focus. George is like that. Uh, Frampton's like that. Uh, David Hayes like that to an extent, although he doesn't talk a lot in general. Um... Loads of people you see in gyms are fine until their hands get wrapped and then they start to zone in. Derek, just nothing. Burberry coat, big fedora hat, walks in, boots on, kits ready to go. Doesn't talk to many people. Might talk to aspiring partners, that's it. Then he just gets on with it. And so it's a real odd couple because mo most trainer-fighter dynamics are quite close and tight and warm. But, and it's visible. You can see that both are invested in it. And that one I just never really saw. In terms of coach fighter, where it's kind of gone a bit crazy. If you remember when Huey Fury fought in Bulgaria, one of the guys on the undercard punched his coach. I think the coach punched him back and it properly kicked off. That's one of the few times I've seen that. Um, wasn't it Darrell's uncle as well who just steamed in? after the fight and then sort of start putting hands on, on Darrell's opponent. Was it Leon Lawson III or something like that? So there are a couple of kind of oddballs that you find in the sport, but in terms of just an odd dynamic, Don Charles and Derek Chisora, like I said. Maybe it's that two DCs can't work well together, I don't know. But like Don's a lovely man, Derek's a decent guy. It's just that that dynamic didn't make sense to me. I got a question here from Yuri, which is, how would I have coped against the the original Japanese Ninja Warrior course. Um, not as good as Nagano, that's for damn sure. Um, I think the only time I went through a phase of trying to do stuff like that was when they they revived Gladiators, and this has got to be like 2008, 2009. And me and my mate like, are we going to do this? I don't think, well, in, in the end, we, it's like, oh, I can't be bothered. But I started training for it. So I dropped, I dropped about nine kilos. And I started doing a lot of those exercises that you see on Ninja Warrior. Because I wanted to be agile. I wanted to see what could I do if I went down to like, I think it was 89 kilos. And I, I was all right. But the thing with those is it's not a strength thing. It's a skill and coordination thing. So you just have to practice. So if you gave me a year to practice, I think um, on a scale of like zero to 10, as in you don't start versus 10, you finish about six and a half. But I have a lot of respect for what those guys do. It takes a lot of practice, a lot of practice. And you have to be the right kind of weight. You need the right height, the right weight. 
the right weight distribution so you want more upper body weight than lower body weight all of these things are important and there's just massive respect to those guys because it's not easy now whether all that ninja warrior training is transferable over to sport like football boxing rugby i plead the crossfit like it, it's it's a cool thing to do but it's not transferable really just because you don't do a lot of those movements in your general day-to-day -day life anyway unless you're a fireman okay fascinating question from oxygen football agency and it is i want to go verbatim on this one do you think georgie boy collins career influenced how frank has managed some of his fledgling boxers careers um okay abbreviated version of george collins's story george collins was a kid i think he trained at pinewood star so for all of you who know pinewood star produces schoolboy champion after schoolboy champion i don't think they have a senior program so once you get to 17 you go somewhere else so guys who have come through there obviously the collins brothers felix cash has come through there the azim brothers have come through there so yeah it's it's kind of that sort of slough maiden heady sort of area lovely people by the way but george collins was a kid who could do no wrong schoolboys juniors crushed everyone everything like you know one of those those freak of nature talents right a bit like frankie gavin just could do stuff that didn't make sense so frank's like i'll have some of that builds him up so basically signs him at 18 he has this, like from he's 18 when he turns pro excuse me he's 18 and he i don't know what his record was but he got to like 20 30 something bouts like he had a fair few bouts and then he had his first real test. And I can't remember who it was against. And he got absolutely smoked. And what was crazy was he'd had this long record, was it? It was, it was a crazy record. Like, what a streak. Like, 33 fights unbeaten. And then first time he fought, it might have been for the British, it might have been for the Commonwealth. He gets smoked. Put that down to, okay, one off. And then they do the worst thing you can do in someone's career. When, you, when, you're, when you're that sort of person, you haven't had to prove your physicality. Don't put a guy in with Kirkland Lang. Of all the people to put George Collins in with, and that, that was the end of his career. I think it just dawned on him that he wasn't at that level. And that's not even like a super high level. And so does this influence how Frank manages careers now? It depends on whether Frank learned the lesson. There's a degree of physicality you need to be a pro. You don't want to be getting injured too often. You don't want to be falling off the rails. I think Frankie Gavin found that. There's a physicality he can't cope with. I think it's the same with Billy Joe. There's a physicality they can't cope with. Go back and watch the Eubank fight and the John Ryder fight. Those two guys were able to bully Billy Joe when it was up close. And then Billy used his footwork to stay away for the rest of the time. And maybe it's that when you're that gifted that early, you don't have to rely on physicality. So you don't really develop it early enough. Whereas guys like Kirkland Lang had to do it the hard way. Whereas guys like John Ryder had to do it the hard way. And so they have that physical resilience, which means you can get through camps and you don't get injured as often. All these little things that add up and so you look at Frank now, you've got guys like Royston, Barney Smith, or whatever his surname is. You've got Dennis McCann. Young guys of a similar profile to Georgie Collins. And they're going to be moved on a lot slower than maybe the fans would want. Because they have to show they've got the physicality. Dennis McCann's getting to that point now where he's got to show he can be strong in there. Not just skillful, not just fast, not just accurate, but he can be strong in there. We need to see that. I, I believe it's there. Eddie Lamb says it's there, so I believe him. It's the same with Royston. We have to start seeing these things. Um, who was the other lad? Frankham. And it was about whether, you know, there, there are always these questions around that sort of physicality when you come through the system really young. You no, know, Hopi Price has had the same question. These questions come up. So it's just... You want that physicality. There's no point in going slow if the physicality never develops. That's the thing. 
And that's the lesson I've learned from the Georgie Collins career. You have to be damn strong because you're going to jump in with guys like Kirkland Lang and they're going to knock you into the middle of next week. Question here from Boxing Steve, um, Boxing Steve 87. And he asks, who do you believe is the most overrated UK high-profile boxer currently? And who do you think is the most underrated high-profile boxer currently? So underrated Isaac Dogbo, by far. Of all the British boxers, Isaac Dogbo is not even close. If you write out what this guy has done in his life, and Isaac's probably 27 now, right? Remember, he's 27. He's been to the Olympics. He's won his ABA title. He's been pro. He's been a world champion. I don't know if he's been a world champion once or twice. He's done it all away from the UK. He's boxed in the States. He's boxed in Africa. He may have even boxed in Europe, but all away from the UK. And he's managed to do this, get himself signed to top rank, become one of top rank's key assets in the featherweight division. And all of this from a kid who walked into Fitzroy Lodge as a 13-year-old with his old man, Paul. You're not supposed to do that. Went to war with Carl Frampton as an 18-year-old. Earned the respect of everyone there for the fact that he didn't give up. Forced Carl to be the best version of himself. So I'd say Isaac Dogbo from the UK, comfortably. Not even close. Overrated, it has to be Billy Joe. Right? This is the man that beat Lemieux, Ryder, and Eubank Jr. And we were trying to put him in the same bracket as Canelo. <laughs> and that's not to say Billy's not talented. It's just that he's always been there or thereabouts. And when it's time for him to make that step up, it never happens. 2008 Olympics, it was meant to be him versus Andrade in the final. The draw was set up for that. He couldn't make it out. He couldn't make it to the semis. And then the, all the stories that came with it, and you know, you, it's, all, it's all been shared ad nauseum. And then he had that time after the Lemieux win, he could have stepped up and he could have really gone for greatness. And it didn't happen. And that's what separates people from being great. Like you fulfill your talent when you seize the moment. And he never really seemed to want to seize the moment. Maybe he's comfortable outside of the ring and, you know, boxing's just a hobby for him and that's fine. You know, you'll always enjoy watching Billy Joe because there's a grace and an elegance to what he does. But there'll always be this nagging feeling of he could have been so much more. But deep down, maybe he didn't want to be much more. A question from James Court. Can I ever see a time when professional boxing is shown on the BBC? No, don't have enough money. Um, the costs involved in doing boxing shows now have accelerated so much I don't think a public service broadcaster could justify the expenditure it's sad but true uh, maybe when the BBC loses its license it starts to then become a more commercial player I'm not so sure but that's what I'd like to see but if it, if it wasn't free to air then what would be the point so I don't think we'll see boxing on the BBC in that sense you may get highlights packages or like a like a summary show of this is what's happening in the world of boxing like a you know almost like a video package service but outside of that i don't i don't see i don't think it would do much people are generally moving away from the bbc not towards the bbc franny 550 wants to know why i think o'hara davis beats josh taylor <laughs> um it's a competitive fight well it's more competitive than the first one and there's a reason for that. I don't think O'Hara Davis had had to cope with adversity like that in public before. Yes, you can lose the amateur bout here. You can lose the amateur bout there. That's all well and good. You dust yourself up and go again. But O'Hara Davis had a guy in front of him, Josh Taylor, who was more special than any of us thought. And I think he suffered mainly from not having done his preparation. The McGuigans were well prepared for O'Hara Davis. That was the difference in that fight, the level of preparation. Does Josh Taylor hit harder than O'Hara? No. But he was better prepared and he throws more punches. And what Jack Cattrall showed was if you're not there to be hit, it's a different proposition. And many would argue 
O'Hara Davis produced a better performance against Cattrall than Josh Taylor did. But I don't like to triangulate. I think if those two fight now, O'Hara is more mature, more confident in himself, understands himself better, knows what he needs to do in training, and he's faced him before. I'm not saying he would win. What I am saying is the fight wouldn't go the way he did the first time around. And I think it's time we started to give O'Hara Davis his roses for being able to rebuild because go back to when they fought. It must have been about five years ago. The world was happy to savage O'Hara Davis, right? But since that fight, you name me one public incident where you've seen O'Hara Davis embarrass himself. One. And I'm talking outside of a boxing context because, you know, when people are selling fights, I'll say anything. Name me one, con- one moment where O'Hara Davis has been away from boxing and has acted up. You can't find it. Guy doesn't drink, doesn't party, doesn't do anything, leads a monastic life. But if I asked you to do the same for Josh Taylor, we'll be here all day. So I think also the tide of public opinion will swing more towards O'Hara Davis now than it did prior to then. And that can all count. Like when you've got a crowd that's on your case and on your side, the differences are massive. So when someone's on your case, it's hard. When someone's on your side, it's easier. The press conferences are easier. You have a different conversation. You're not having to fight your corner all the time. And I think they're the sort of small things that can help turn a fight into a more even affair. So I wouldn't be surprised if O'Hara beat Josh. I also wouldn't be surprised if Josh beat O'Hara. As things stand today. They may be different a year from now, but right now, today, I think that's a competitive fight. Cooperville wants to know how Anthony Joshua versus David Hay would go. Um, So let's just pick the David Hay that fought John Ruiz, for example. And we'll take the Anthony Joshua that fought... uh, that fought Vlad. Yeah, I want I want that version. The the two hundred and fifty odd pound Anthony Joshua. And how does that fight go? Um so so the key matchups here are can Joshua match David's mobility? Because you know David's never there to be hit for a start. We know David's chin's solid. We saw the shellacking he took against Bellew in the first fight. David can can hold his own. We also know that Joshua's quite lazy with the jab, and that's that's the gap David looks for intuitively. He looks at that bit where you don't bring your hand back up when you throw your jab, and he'll spend round after round just timing that, and then he catches you. So the question is, does Joshua take those shots? My answer is no, because history suggests that he hasn't taken those power shots, especially the ones that David throws to kind of like the top of the head temple area. So I can see that being the ending of the fight. But here's the strange thing. I don't think Joshua, not Joshua, I don't think David had been in with someone like Anthony Joshua, a guy who would, at various points in the fight, go for him. Like like when Derek did. But I think Joshua, with longer reach, a bit more explosive, might do that. So David would have to fight through something. He might even have to fight through a knockdown to get rid of Anthony, but I think he does it in the end. I just think he was he was a smaller version of Anthony Joshua, so to speak, and almost a prototype for Joshua, but just better. Because, as Joshua said, you need skill. And David had skill, he had timing, he had speed, and he had power. Joshua just had size. That's all he had over, over David Hay. So I think a prime Hay beats a prime Joshua. Now, the hay that was talking about fighting AJ from 2016 onwards, nah, he doesn't stand a chance. Just no mobility. There isn't the mobility and there isn't the speed. I think Anthony Joshua mows that version down. So that, that's what I'd say. It, it would have been a great fight. Like That would have done insane numbers. That would have been the kind of fight you would have just put on in cinemas. There would have been Wembley, it would have been cinemas, you'd have had to pay a load of money to watch that because... That would have literally been the best of British. So I would have enjoyed that fight. I just, I just don't see Anthony Joshua winning that one. Uh, I've got a question from Jonathan Cron here. And it's around Sam Hyde. So I, I didn't see Sam Hyde boxing on the, on the KSI show. Um, not really my thing. 
but I'm aware of who Sam Hyde is. Um, not a very good comedian. One of those guys who trades in controversy and then sort of couches it as free speech. And I think it was about, what, six, seven years ago, he was effectively just cancelled, right? When there was this whole thing of just get rid of the right. He was one of the guys that, that suffered for it. And I think he had a few a few shockers since then. Like, he, he seemed to just back the wrong horses. And so he firmly hitched his wagon to the far right. And I think in this one, number one, the fact that he's been redeemed, that maybe there were questions around that. And him threatening, I think there's a guy, um, left-wing activist, that he was threatening as well. Now, just to, to state my point here, this this whole left v right thing, this binary kind of view of politics blows my mind because it doesn't make sense. Remember, the bottom line is this. We all queue in the same supermarket. We're all watching the same boxing events. We're in the same pubs. We're in the same shops. Our lives are 99% common, whatever your political persuasion is. You know what I mean? You know, you love the Five Guys fries like I do. You know, if something's two for one, you'll always buy it, even though you don't need it. You just love that feeling. There's so much about us as human beings that unites us. That you're right wing, left wing. What does that really mean? Yet, yet we hate people so much about this. And I don't really understand it. Like the Sam Hyde guy, there are ways to be funny without being a dick. And this is true for everyone. There are ways to be funny without being a dick. And I think this left v right thing has probably gone so far that I don't think it comes back. And people always say, where do you sit? In the, it's, not, it's not a discussion I have anything in common with. It's not a discussion I identify with. It's not a discussion that has any value in my life. I just live my life the best way that I can. But you have to ask how low are the zone willing to go for, for views? And you've got to balance that against the fact that everyone deserves a redemption story. Your know, boxing's full of them. So is this a path to redemption? I have no idea. But yeah, I think there's some un uncomfortable questions. I don't think it's an accident that Hearn praised the KSI show without claiming a connection to it. I think he was very clear that he was distancing himself from the YouTube stuff because that way you can't have the uncomfortable conversation about guys like Sam Hyde. Eddie Hearn's not stupid. He knows how to dodge a grenade when he sees one. So what I'd say is Sam Hyde, not my cup of tea. Um, I can't say he doesn't deserve a platform because look, there are people who will listen to him regardless, right? I'd just rather we all just viewed the world from a human perspective first. I'd rather we all just embrace the shared human experience and focus on the stuff that united us. But I don't know how you get to that point. I'll be brutally honest. I have zero idea. Yeah, that's probably as political as I'm going to be on this podcast. Right, I'm going to wrap this up with a couple of questions from Carl Chapman. Robert Edwards, I've got your question, but I think yours, that's a longer answer. And yeah. You know, I don't want to squeeze that into like a, a two-minute response. I don't think that's fair on the question. It wouldn't be fair on you. But Carl Chapman, <laughs> I saved the toughest one till last. So to summarize Carl's question, he goes, with all the money being made from P PPV, so pay-per-view sales of non-boxers, so your KSIs, your Logan Pauls, do I regret being such a dick about white-collar boxing? So I'm going to address this. The answer is no, and here's why. Before KSI fought Logan Paul, he'd probably been in the gym in aggregate six to nine months. He had trained. It wasn't a 12-week program he undertook. Right? He trained. He was at Fitzroy Lodge. He trained hard. He sparred hard. He did a lot of work before that Logan Paul fight. He took it seriously because he understood when you're trying to make money, the product has to be solid. And when was that? Five years ago? Four years ago? Five years ago? And since then, he's stayed true to the sport. You'll see him at London Shoot Fighters. He's training. He's, he hasn't stopped training. The Paul brothers have been training for God knows how long with their coach, Milton uh, Lacroix. 
They've been training for five years. I don't know. I don't think you can call that white collar after a certain point. After a certain point, you're in it. This isn't a 12-week program, right? So at the top level, those guys are all guys who are as experienced, if not more experienced than some of the guys you're seeing on, on shows on TV. So that begs the question, what level would Jake Paul be? Could Jake Paul fight on a Goodwin show? Yeah. Yeah, comfortably. There's no debate about that. Could his brother? Yep. Could KSI fight on a Goodwin show? Yeah. Are they going to win an English title? It would take a lot to go right for them to do so. But they wouldn't disgrace themselves as professionals. Simple fact. They just wouldn't. So let's move down the value chain and let's start to look at the, the wicked and bad promotion run by Bouncer. This one's interesting because the assumption, and, and you've fallen into this trap as well, Carl, because you don't recognize the people who are doing it, you assume that they're all white-collar lads. So let's take Salt Pappy. Salt Pappy's been boxing for five or six years. Like, I know him from the gyms. Um... On Bouncer's show, there's a guy called Aggie, right? With the, with the little braids. Aggie's been boxing since he was a schoolboy, since he's 11. Right? So the question is, where are these guys coming from? I'll tell you. These guys are all lads that are in gyms regularly. But they don't fancy the amateur thing because they're like, I'm not getting paid for it. But you are getting paid for these pay-per-view events. So you don't mind jumping in the ring for four or five rounds, for four, well, five or six bags. You don't mind that. So when you say that what we're seeing on TV with KSI validates white collar, it doesn't. These guys were levels above white collar before all of this became a thing. They were good kids in the gym who were sparring regularly. Saul Pappy was one of them. You can see videos of him putting hands on people back in the day. You could see that he could box back then. So he's one of the ones that can box. Um, there's a kid called Will All Night Long who will end up on one of these shows at some point. He was with us for three years. And that was pre-pandemic. And he hasn't stopped training. So he's at Miguel's now, but he hasn't stopped training. You know, they'll get guys like Freezy McBones on there. He's won titles. So don't fall into the trap of thinking because you've never seen them on mainstream TV, these guys aren't in the gym Every week they are. You know, this is what you this is gyms are generally full of loads of people who just train and spar because they don't have they don't have the time or the inclination to cut weight. So they just train and they spar. And these wicked and bad promotions, KSI's promotion, just scoops them up and says, Do you want to fight? Yep, why not? So these aren't white collar lads. If you put these boys in with white collar guys, they'd knock them out. And I'm not saying that theoretically. I've seen these guys ice white collar people, not even deliberately. And so that's my issue with white collar. Can you imagine? I put on a, a set of combat fatigues and I put a backpack on my back. And I sat with some SAS guys and said, I'm one of you. And they just look at me like, well, just because you got the uniform and the Bergen, you're one of us. And, no. I didn't go through their training. I haven't been to the dark places they've been to. I haven't had that real fear of jeopardy that they've had. In and amongst those guys, I'd be an imposter. If I played for Hayes and Yedding and I put on an England shirt and a full England kit and I showed up at St. George's Park, I'm a fraud. That doesn't mean that I don't play football. I do play football. But the thing I'm trying to claim, I can't claim. It's not valid. It's not true. That's the issue with white collar. There's all sorts of safety concerns as well, but we'll just park those for now because some do it well, some don't do it well. But there are things that are not right with white collar. But the thing is, it's a lack of respect for the sport. Anyone that tells you you can do something in 12 weeks is lying. And I think I said it, when, when we did the white collar episode, I said it. If these were guys who had trained for a year before even thinking about white collar, I'd be more receptive to it. But you're going to show up for 12 weeks and you're going to fight old Derek over there from accounts who've been training for 12 weeks and then midway through the second round, you're both so fucked that it's like, oh God. 
and then I've got to pat you on the back because at least you had a go. Nah. And that's not to demean the individual achievement that someone's had of, you know, I went through the process. That's fine. We will congratulate you for your individual journey, but you can't be sat there. And this happened to me at a wedding. The lady sat next to me and was, yeah, you know, my husband, he's a semi-pro boxer. And he'd had three ultra-white-collar boxing fights. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. And until the white-collar lot get their situation sorted and actually honest enough to say, guys, we are not boxing. We're entertainment. We're exercise. We're not what those guys do. And that's why we don't jump in the ring with them. I'd respect it a lot more if it was like that. So, in summary... A lot of those people you're seeing on the YouTuber cards are guys that have been in gyms for years. We all recognize them. They're just guys that didn't fight. But they've been in gyms sparring, training, and they've seen that they can make a few quid for four or five rounds work. Why wouldn't they do it? I mean, they've been getting hit and sparring long enough. You may as well get paid for it, right? So I hope that answers the question from my position. And then secondly, you asked, has Eddie learned anything from AJ? So, you know, the dilemma now is do you match them hard and find out how good they are or do you match them soft and try and, you know, extract as much money as you can? I don't ever believe Joshua was going to be a world beater. There was just nothing about him that was world beating. Wilder has nothing about him apart from that power. Nothing about Wilder that's world beating. But he has that equalizer. Boxing is a game of tenure. You have to have done your years. You have to have done your hard, hard years because there are just lessons you learn at 14, 15, 16, 17 that you may never have to rely on until you're 30. You may never be in that position again because remember when you're young, you're fighting people your own age. So ability-wise, not, it's not a big variance. Size-wise, it's not a big variance. You're fighting people your own age, so you're always under pressure when you're young. So those lessons you learn under pressure don't come to fruition until you get back in those positions again. And so my, my take on it would be they did what they had to do with Joshua. They had to match him lightly, or this would have ended a lot sooner. In fact, Ruiz wasn't meant to end it the way he did. And that's what messed everything up. But then Usyk said, well, if Ruiz can do it, so can I. This was never part of the plan. That's why, that, that's why Joshua had to earn handsomely for the privilege of getting beat. So I think what you'll find with Hearn is he'll just keep doing the same thing. He does it with Conor Ben, with Campbell Hatton. They'll avoid all the threats until it's time to win a world title. And then they'll just look to cash out. It's a shame, but Boxing's become that much of a business and Hearn has so few assets he can't afford any more high-profile defeats like he's just had. He can't. If Bivol were to lose to Ramirez out in Abu Dhabi, jeez, it's horrible. If Golovkin beats Canelo, it's horrible. It really is. And he's going to be in a really tough position, especially amongst his zone paymasters. And then the Saudis will be like, well, you haven't got anything for us anymore. And that phone will go dead. Ah. Oh. Late, late, late entrance. Mr. Vinyl Pugilist, late. Mm-hmm. But we're going to squeeze these in because I hadn't really started, you know, crafting the episode. So, whew, mate, skin of teeth, if ever there was skin of teeth. So first question he asks is, should we get more combat sports, boxing, MMA, judo? Should we get more of those into school? And, you know, what are the barriers to getting it done? So, so when I was at school, for example, I did taekwondo, right? Did taekwondo. A load of us did it. Like, it was provided for by an external guy. Um, seems to know what he was doing. He's like a fourth Dan Black Belt, looked like Peter Stringfellow taught us a lot about how the body works and how the body moves. It was brilliant, by the way. Um, most of it useless in a fight, and his lad got sparked out once in a fight, so that kind of turned us all off, um, the idea of taekwondo. But what are the barriers? Insurance is the biggest one. Schools don't want to carry that risk. Um, it, things that spook parents out, rugby does as well. 
parents get scared. You know, the same parents who are like, sport's really good for kids. Kids should all play sport. Will then say, ah, don't my son playing rugby. So boxing's a completely different order of magnitude of irrational fear. The second thing is, there are more schools in this country than there are boxing clubs. So who's going to do all the coaching? The worst thing you can have is boxing in schools taught by people who don't know their backside from their elbow. So there's no coaching capacity to do so. That's one of the big challenges you have. So these are all the things you'd have to overcome. And then just location. Where are you going to do it? Most schools sold off their playing fields to build new build flats and help to buy schemes and stuff um, under duress from the government. So we've lost a lot of playing fields. So you'd almost have to build new facilities. I know they've got their gyms and their leisure facilities, but can you imagine having to set up a ring every week? for these kids to train and then having to set the bags up, you'd need a fixed facility. So then you ask yourself, could you partner with a local boxing club? Yes, but they have capacity issues too. So there are a load of things that make it hard to execute. I think the appetite and the desire are broadly there. I just think it's a hard thing to execute from a, a practical and logistical perspective. Ah, look, I would love it. And I think what you could do is you could do it with specific schools. I think, if you targeted schools, then yeah, you could. So some of them could be like boxing academies. I think there's a Frank Bruno boxing academy, which is similar. But broadly speaking, you're going to struggle around the coaching capacity as well as the insurance requirements above all else. And then second question was, will we ever see boxing franchised? Much like the NFL, rugby league and so on and so forth. And the answer is no. Al Heyman tried it. And he burnt through half a billion before he realized you couldn't do it. No one has an interest in a franchise. The thing about the franchise is it works because it's a closed, like it's closed, right? The NFL is closed. You can't just have teams and say the NFL teams. You have to be voted in. So all those teams you see playing, what they call it, arena football, like the Tuscaloosa, I don't know, Titans or whatever, They'll never be in the NFL. And so they'll try and make as much money as they can doing arena football, but they'll never be in the NFL so they don't get the gravy train. The issue with boxing is everyone jumps in. You got money to launder? Go through boxing. You know, you got an ego to stroke? Go through boxing. You want to increase your subscriber base? I just go through boxing. It's easy. No barriers to entry. No central governing body to deal with. And that's why we get the nonsense we get as boxing fans, and we can't be upset about that anymore. Because we not that we bring it on ourselves, I don't think that's true either. But what we do is we turn a blind eye to it. I think the franchise thing would have been brilliant. The UFC shows how powerful a franchise is. But we also know that not all the best MMA fighters are in the UFC. But it's where they end up. So how do you create that? How do you create a promotional entity that means everyone wants to end up there? That's going to be super hard. First thing you have to do is just get rid of the belts. That's what you do. Just get rid of the belts. And you, you're almost seeing this with these kind of KSI, um, his promotion, the Wicked and Bad promotions. They're not bothered about belts. They're doing their own thing. You're, you're under their umbrella and you work, essentially you work for them. And as a franchise, that works. They've understood that. Once you control the franchise, you control the value. Eddie Hearn doesn't control a franchise. You know, he has to go and ask Suleiman. He has to go and ask whoever for a title shot to validate his fighter. And he can't, surely he can't like that either. So in response to it, I don't think boxing would because a lot of people want to be able to get into boxing. And they also know that they can make money appear and disappear in boxing with no accountability. You turn it into a serious business, you turn it into a franchise, and a lot of the money that's in boxing would leave in a heartbeat. Because they're like, well, there's no point here now. Now we've got to explain where the money came from, we've got to justify the money, we're not going to do that. So I don't think you'd see that, even though it will bring so much clarity to the sport, and actually, it would end up driving more value, which is just my sincerely held opinion on that. But there we go. All right, at that point, I'm going to stop because I am 
beat up from having recorded all of this. I forget how hard it is to go this long. But listen, if you've stayed this long, if you stayed the course, thank you. If this is your first one, make sure you listen to part one as well. So this is a two-parter. Makes it easier to, to manage. And, you know, if you're walking your dog, if you're driving your cab, hopefully there's not too much bad language and you'll be all right. And I know that I'm going to say take care, guys. Enjoy. Enjoy.